Hello and welcome to Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people that live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I'll be meeting some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. My guest this week is the author of a new book, Secret Gardens of Somerset. Abigail Willis has lived in the county for almost 20 years, and this, her third book, is a journey around 20 of the historic, significant and hidden gardens dotted all around Somerset. She's also worked in some of the country's most revered art institutions, contributed to national newspapers, and has written books about the museums, galleries and gardens of London. Abigail, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you for having me. We are meeting on a glorious kind of end of summer, early autumn evening. Can we say balmy? Balmy? Yes, yeah, we it can is, say balmy. isn't it? It's nice and I think that's... warm and slight breeze. Yeah, and thank you for your homemade elderflower cordial. It's which, a pleasure. Which is delicious. You have been in Somerset for nearly 20 years? Yes, I th- I, my math is really, really bad. And I think um, it's probably something like si- 17 years rather than... But yeah, it's, you know, best part of 20 years. During that time, have you always been in Castle Kerry or have you moved around the county a little bit? No, we've, I, we started off in Somerset um, where we live for about... Um, 10, 11 years, um, we were living in the Quantocks, so we were over the, the other side of, of Somerset. Uh, totally different feel about the place, but um, it's, yeah, we're now in Castle Carey, so it's wonderful to experience, you know, I think Somerset is a, a very multifaceted county, so it's, you know, I'm pleased to have had that experience of living in two such different places within the county. How long did it take before you felt like a local? Ooh, in, they're both very different places. So um, Netherstowe, I don't think you'll ever, it's one of those places you will never be a local. Um, you're always going to be sort of a, an outsider. Um, but Castle Carey is um, incredibly, I, would, I still probably wouldn't, lots of people wouldn't regard me as a local, I guess, but it's a very welcoming place. So yes, it feels like home and it felt like home within, you know, I don't know, a few months, really quick. Were you a keen gardener before moving to Somerset? Yes, yeah, no, my gardening obsession started um, when we lived in the Cotswolds, which is where we moved from uh, to Somerset, and that was our first garden, first house, first garden, and it was absolutely tiny, but it was, um, we were lucky, we inherited a garden that had been filled with quite interesting plants and was obviously looked after by a keen gardener, so I just rather rapidly found myself spending a lot of time there, pottering around, just, you know, fiddling around, changing things, buying new th- plants and putting them in and just um, learning about gardening really. And then um, my job situation changed and I started working, helping um, a local herbalist in her garden and she had a fantastic garden and I sort of gardened alongside her and started really learning about well herbs but also plants. And then I went and got a you know, signed up to do an RHS course at a local college, sort of more or less night school, with a fantastic teacher called Ernie Bingham, who is sadly no longer with us, but he was a really brilliant teacher. And um, that, that's, of course, really set me up. And, um, yeah, I've, you know, gave, gave me a really good grounding and confidence in, in gardening. And obviously, it's one of those subjects that there's always, you know, so much more to learn. I'm on the, a very low rung of the horticultural ladder, but um, it's, you know, it was a good starting point. You grew up in Dorset. Yes. Were gardens important growing up? I think they were. Looking back at the time, I think I took a lot of things for granted, but I was lucky enough to live in places or houses with really nice gardens. And I think my parents were very keen gardeners and my mother's got a very green 
finger or green thumb, as the Americans say. Weirdly, I don't know why. Um, so it was sort of there in my surroundings, I guess. And I think as a child, I also, um, now you mention it, I had a little sort of garden. I was given a little garden area. I mean, it was in the middle of a wood, so it was doomed to failure. But nonetheless, you know, I, I do remember sort of going out and trying to grow things in it. Yeah, I think for children, gardens are such a place of fascination and creativity. I have two girls and they, they call um, a fuchsia, they'll call it a ballerina flower. Yes, yeah. Because it looks like a ballerina. Absolutely. And, and they'll just conjure up ideas of, you know, fairies living in various places. I, I feel gardens are or should be very child friendly, but some of the more formal ones maybe aren't as much. I think gardens are places that you should be able to experience on so many different levels and I think as a child's imagination and um, obviously they're at a completely different height aren't they you know they're seeing things literally from a different angle. Um, I think it's wonderful that they, they they're getting that out of gardens already I don't know how old they are but there was they, perhaps they're quite young but yeah it sounds yeah good for them. Did you spend a lot of your time outside then growing up? Yes yeah it was it's quite an outdoorsy childhood we um, were quite horsey children so we were sort of normally kind of galloping around uh, the countryside and all going for walks and we had dogs and chickens and all that sort of thing so it's a really sort of country upbringing and I think that yeah that also instills a, a, an appreciation of nature on a sort of larger scale I guess yeah. As a family did you visit the rest of the West Country or did you kind of stick to stick to Dorset? We stuck to Dorset. I mean Dorset is a fantastic uh, county to grow up in because it's got you know wonderful coast and the countryside in, inland. Um, so I don't really remember doing lots of um, holidays elsewhere. And also, if you have animals, you're very tied to, to looking after them, particularly sort of horses. So we, but we did have um, a great family holiday on Exmoor, which was my first experience, I suppose, probably of Somerset. Um, and that was, that was great. That's such a different space. Um, those lovely open moorlands, and it's quite, it's quite sort of wild and savage, I think. So. And that, that is what is lovely about Somerset, I think. It has just got these such different landscapes within one county. It's quite a large county. So that was quite a, quite a formative memory. You also had a love of art and literature. Yes. Where did that come from? Well, literature always... I mean, I was an avid reader as a child. I absolutely devoured books. Um, so um, I think on some level I always thought I might be a writer or wanted to be a writer. I had no idea obviously how you go about doing these things. And um, art, that sort of came later when I was at, at university um, because I uh, went to, off to study English literature. I was completely, you know, mono uh, track on that. I, I, that's all I wanted to do. But when I went to Reading University, um, what, in the first year you have to do some other courses. They, they, they try and sort of show you <laughs> some wider horizons, I guess. And I signed up to do History of Art as one of those extra modules and really fell in love with it. Uh, we had really good tutors and um, that was really sort of revelatory. Um, and I think actually thinking about it again, just prior to that, on my gap year, we'd gone, I'd sort of gone interrailing. Uh, with some quite arty friends and they were into sort of going inside cathedrals and looking at art and galleries and things and that was I guess my first exposure to it and um, yeah that probably prompted me to do history of art and then I decided to change my degree to do a sort of combined course with English literature and history of art which was a really good combination I really enjoyed it. So your first exposure to the art world and museums and galleries and that space was more kind of on the continent 
Initially, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure we did, did go to the old museum as, as, as kids, but we didn't go up to London very much. It, that was, you know, as I say, we were. It was quite a rural upbringing. Uh, so, yeah, it was that sense of, I suppose, your first. Well, it was my first experience of travelling, you know, independently, and it was really exciting, and I really enjoyed it. And um, I, re yeah, I, I think visiting gardens and museums gives me that set, a similar sense of. Um, satisfaction I guess of well-being I think they're they're good for the soul in some way I can't really explain why um, but there's de a definite uh, a, a similar um, experience for me. At what point did you then decide that sort of your career in museums and galleries that's where you wanted to kind of start your professional life? Ah, oh, I love I love the fact that you think I was so organized that I had a plan <laughs> no I, I had I honestly didn't think about what I was going to do for, for, for a living at, at university, which was, I mean, very, you know, liberating, I guess. I, I had a sort of secretarial qualification and I was able to earn money during the holidays. Um, but I, I, I definitely didn't think that was where my future lay. But no, I, I was um, cycling along campus one day and um, one of my history of art tutors who knew of someone at the Courtauld Institute who was looking for someone to join their research team and he suggested me. So I went along for interview and um, yeah, got, got, that, got that job and that's where I started. So I started at the Courtauld Institute in a place called the Wit Library and doing um, iconographic in indexing. So it was a collection of reproductions of images which were a very valuable tool for researchers and we were putting it all onto a big database but by subject matter. So, so describing using codes, um, very searchable codes, what the picture um, depicted so if you if you didn't know anything about the picture but you knew sort of what was in it you could search it or, you know whether it was a sort of scene with cows or ships or um, a biblical scene so it was it was a very interesting year doing that um, and then from there I went to work as a researcher for uh, an art history art historian um, who was working on um, Camille Pizarro and his catalogue resume and a big exhibition so I was doing picture research for that. Those first ones based in London? Yes the Courtauld Institute yeah. is in London and yeah and and the second job was also in London so. London is a subject that you've written about quite extensively as well. Yes. What was the sort of early stages of that relationship between you and the city? I think it's probably almost on a physical level, isn't it? You I was living um, in North London, so commuting to the Strand by bicycle, sometimes by foot. I quite often used to walk into work and you just sort of get a, a, a sense of place. And I really enjoyed, you know, London's history, my goodness. I mean, there's just so much there. And um, I just really enjoyed exploring London, getting to know, getting to know it. And, um, you know, you have, you have a sort of gang of friends who live in different places of London, so you're visiting them, going out, just experiencing the city and, you know, having fun, working hard, having fun. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, an endlessly fascinating place. And I think every ge you know, young generation who goes up to London to start their careers, you know, a lot of them get that, that feeling out of the city. And everyone's constantly rediscovering or discovering for themselves um, these really interesting bits of history and folklore and all that. Your writing professionally started 
uh, I want to say as a journalist, but it was not necessarily as a conventional route into journalism, shall we say. Um, what was behind that kind of story? Well, I think I was, um, I was doing a different job then at that stage. I think I was working um, in, in, in book selling and was perhaps a bit frustrated, I think, at that stage. And I was always sort of going, oh, I want to be a writer. And I think one of my, a friend of mine just called my bluff and said, well, if you, you know, just, you've got to just get on and do it. And so I had this idea um, about doing a, a sort of restaurant review, but not from the rest, you know, not from a normal perspective, but from the point of view of the doggy bags that people would collect at the end of their meal and, and, and what the dogs would get when they got home. So I, I pitched that idea to the Evening Standard who um, said, yeah, okay, well, that, that sounds great, off you go. And I, I, mean, I just had no clue of how to research it at all. I just sort of rang up restaurants and was absolutely terrified. But um, people took, I think, must have taken pity on me and gave me good stories. And I think I even went round uh, to a, one restaurant, I can't even remember which one it was now, and they gave me a, an example of a doggy bag and, you know, one of these sort of foil swans that they created. Um, so that was really fun. And then from there, I did a bit more work for the Evening Standard and I did shop reviews for them which was also really fun, going and sort of reviewing the kind of quirky independent shops that were, um, you know, around and about in those days. And, um, and from there, I've just I've done odd bits and pieces of journalism, but I, you know, I can't really class myself as a sort of <laughs> professional journalism. Um, but, from, but from then, I think just having that experience and that discipline and getting um, quite good feedback from the people I was writing for, quite, when I say good feedback, it was quite harsh feedback, but that was, absolutely what was needed so um, I count myself lucky in that respect that you know I got some good constructive criticism and obviously it didn't sort of deter me I just was determined to go you know keep going on some level and was then lucky enough to be able to sort of branch out into into books. Did you get a bit of a buzz from you know seeing your name in a byline? Oh my god yes it's such an ego boost I mean I literally the first one I do remember going home on the tube and just sort of seeing everyone you know unfurling their evening standard and thinking oh yes I'm in there you know it was yeah that was it's very exciting but I, I've also had that experience of um, being on the tube and seeing people someone you know reading one of my books I want my uh, guidebook to the museums and galleries of London and being in bookshops and seeing people browsing my books. So, you know, yes, it's a massive ego trip. <laughs> Terrible, really. You mentioned the books on museums and galleries. So obviously still being based in London, um, uh, did you see writing as a way to kind of combine your passions of kind of the, the creativity of, of being able to write, but also your subject matter of museums and galleries? Again, you credit me with lots of, um, you know, foresight and planning. It, 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 perhaps on a subconscious level, but I don't think consciously, particularly, um, I could be wrong, uh, it was a long time ago, uh, but the, the Museums and Galleries book, which was um, a guidebook, uh, it's actually still in print, and I've done it, I've sort of revised it over several different editions over, over that time. Um, that just came about from bumping into a friend in the street, someone who I'd worked with in, in, in book selling, uh, who was, was setting up a publishing company, and or had set up a publishing company. I think he, I think the first thing was he wanted me to. I did a, some editing for him, and then he said, "Oh, we we want to do a museum's guide. Would you be interested in doing doing that?" And I just thought, "Yeah, I definitely would be doing, uh, interested in doing that. I don't I don't want anyone else to do it." So um, uh, I 
took a year to re research that first edition. And again, it was sort of like the lady who did the A to Z. I did a lot of just sort of walking around London and going to loads and loads of museums and writing, you know, writing my sort of take on it and putting it together in a guide. And then, yeah, it's been in print ever since. And obviously huge updates because I think the first edition was in 1998 and I, you know, you put a lot of effort into, into it and you think, oh, phew, that's it, I, I don't have to do that again for a bit. But then, of course, the millennium came along with all that sort of heritage lottery funding and huge capital investments. So that, you know, very much a, a major uh, revision was needed. And then I thought, phew, I've done that big revision, I won't have to do that again. And then, of course, the, the, the lottery money sort of kept on rolling and museums have undergone such a seismic change since, you know, over this past two decades um, that, yeah, it was, it was a sort of ongoing project. So it was a, yeah, a, a fun thing to do, but also quite a weird, when you're on the, at the level of uh, doing the revisions, it's quite a strange thing to do because actually by that stage I'd moved out of London. So I had to plan my time quite carefully and, you know, sort of stay with friends and just do, you know, maybe a week or four days at a time and literally sort of seeing five museums a day and just you know checking checking all the facts that I'd put in the first time or you know making sure that was right or if it had changed significantly doing a complete rewrite so yeah it's good fun but slightly odd at, at times. When when writing about London you know obviously the the main big spots um, are, are going to kind of go into the book but you're also quite keen, I think, on um, uncovering the hidden or the sort of less known um, places. Do you, do you enjoy kind of uncovering these gems and definitely? I think well, it's that sense of discovery, and you want to share that discovery. So, uh, and just some things are just really, you know, sort of, you know, really um, cool things to know about. So, um, and you know, if you've come across something that you didn't know about before, you think, well, that, I can't be the only person who doesn't know this, but wouldn't it be great to, to sort of share that? So um, that definitely sort of the, the, the obscure museums in London I enjoy visiting. Um, you know, they're, they're yeah, really quirky places. I, actually, I mean, I have no idea how they're faring at the moment, probably very badly, so I can't sort of comment on them. But it was really, you know, um, seeing museums that were run you know, largely by volunteers that were real sort of passion projects for the people keeping them going but um, investigating quite you know specific areas of London history um, or an area of London um, or a trade in London yeah it was really really interesting and it, it all fitted together in a sort of gigantic jigsaw puzzle I found so that in essence London's museums are a history of London you can tell the history of London through through the objects in those in those museums and they they fit together wonderfully and they have such resonances um, and one of the things I'm always interested in for example is the that crossover in the sort of 18th century between art and science so you have the sort of scientific museums like the Hunterian but they've also got great art collections as well because all those artists were so interested in the science there wasn't that sort of division between the two areas um, so I think that's a really one of my favorite periods of history and London was you know it was uh, amazing at that time and, thriving, bustling, vibrant, awful place probably, but uh, by our standards. But um, yeah, the history of that time is, is fascinating, I think. At kind of, at this point, while being fascinated by London, all its wonders, you're also beginning to cut ties with the city. As you mentioned, you were sort of living elsewhere. Was that hard? Um, well, we moved um, out of London after about, I think, 10 years. So I think it was definitely time for a change. And um, that, 
you know, we were lucky enough to move to the to a lovely place in, you know, in, in, in Oxfordshire. And it was interesting going back to London sort of as a visitor, which is actually a useful perspective to have if you're writing a, a guide, but you have that insider knowledge. But you also, you know, literally you're getting on the train or you're getting on a coach to go into London and, you know, you're expe you literally are coming in as a visitor and seeing it, uh, you know, you're, you know, you're sort of staying, you know, I was sort of staying, staying with friends, so a bit like someone's, you know, having a few days on a city break really. So um, I think that sort of was a useful, a useful perspective to have. Um, but yes, it, was, it doesn't make it any easier <laughs> doing, doing the research, but it made, yeah, it, it sort of intensified it all really. Did you miss the, the access to that level of, of culture? Uh, you yes, know, yes, I think so. But I think doing the doing these updates of guidebooks, I had such intense shots of culture, if you like, um, that that sort of kept me going for quite a long time. And then I, you know, was you know maybe go up and review the uh, you know specific exhibitions or go and visit a specific show. So um, yeah, no, it's definitely enough to sort of you know keep me going. But I think yeah. also what happens, I don't know whether you might have this experience as well. I sort of lost that thick skin that you need navigating London that you sort of you know getting onto a crowded tube or whatever I used to think absolutely nothing of it I would just squeeze myself into that you know the door behind the doors and you, you know I just didn't want to hang around on the platform but um yeah I found myself like waiting for tube after tube I thought oh no I'm not getting on that one oh no I'm not getting on that one no no I'll wait you know so uh and navigating yeah crowds and things it just suddenly became like yeah it's, I think London actually has got a lot busier and a lot crowd, more crowded over the yeah. uh, past few years. So yes, I found myself uh, more sensitised to that aspect of it. Did getting out of London unlock the ability for you to get into gardening? Well, definitely, yeah. It gave me literally the physical space to do gardening. Um, and uh, yeah, finally a space of our own. I mean, we did always have sort of window boxes in London. So they're micro gardens, but it's not at all the same, really. Um, so. Yes, yeah, sort of time and space to do it, um, and also the sort of freedom just to make mistakes in in gardening. I think that is really important. And I uh, also used to avidly read, you know, um, gardening columns in the newspaper. So in the Independent and the Observer, they have really good gardening, um, and and the Telegraph actually has great gardening columns. So I learned a lot by reading reading those those writers and. Um, yeah, you absorb a lot through that and through watching, you know, Gardener's World on television and, um, yeah, and just getting out and getting stuck in, really. It's very, very empowering. What was your starting point on that garden that you inherited? Um, well, I am a great one for the secretaires and the pruning, uh, you know, pruning knife. So I think I probably cut something down, probably cut a tree down or something. Um, and then I also put in a little herb garden and... Um, because it was quite a, it was quite a shady garden in places, so um, yeah. Uh, but the, the herb garden was in a in a place that got sun, I should say, before people start ringing you up and saying, "Oh, you haven't got the herbs in the shade." Um, so yeah, that, I think that was it, and 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 just sort of, and just moving plants around really, um, and just trying them in different places. So um, it was probably very inept, but it was very satisfying and really just really engrossing. Um, because you have that seasonal thing as well and you can always try something next year and um, growing things from seed and putting in bulbs. There are so many different aspects to it. So how did the move to Somerset come about? Um, how did it come about? Um, we 
were, I mean, it's all to do with the vagaries of the house market, really. We, we were, we'd moved to um, Oxfordshire and um, bought in, you know, this little cottage in an area which suddenly had become very, very desirable. So we were able to, as sort of impecunious, you know, artsy people, we realised we could, you know, um, upsize, downsize, move. Anyway, we, we were able to sort of, you know, sell in Oxfordshire and we wanted to, um, yeah, move to a, maybe a slightly bigger house and we were able to do that by moving to Somerset and um, at that stage a lot of my family had also moved to Somerset as well and my husband's sister was living in Somerset so Somerset was kind of a, a, a you know the, the, the magnet really um, so and uh, it was a sort of a adventure heading heading west and a bit further south and um, yeah it was um, yeah a fun a, you know a, a good move. Did you have a sense of it being home from quite early on did it feel I suppose you said you're surrounded by you know maybe some some family did it did it feel like okay this is a this is a homely type of move yes definitely I really I liked the fact that I, 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 we were all in the same phone book that that was really that was really nice and um, yeah I think I think um, the, yeah, the West Country, for want of a better word, is yeah where where I feel at home. Although that you know the Cotswolds are absolutely stunningly beautiful, and we loved it there. So, um, but it was uh, you know it's it's a great county. So I'm really yeah really pleased we made that move, and um, we had great a great ten years or so exploring exploring the Quantocks, which is quite a I think a sort of little known area of Somerset really, and the you know the countryside is so stunning there, and the coastline is very sort of unsung. And um, yeah, there was a lot of space and freedom there, so it was yeah, very nice. Yeah, that, that bit of the coastline up around Porlock Weir and that kind of thing, there, it's so difficult to get to. Yes. Because there aren't many main roads yes. in in that. Well, part I think of the once world. you get the other side of Bridgewater, everything sort of slows down, doesn't yeah. it? It it you know you can't get anywhere very quickly, um, and everything does does slow down. I think that is we definitely noticed a change in pace when we moved to Somerset. It um, makes it worth kind of the effort of getting to yes, those places. Yeah, yeah, they're, and they're, yeah, they, they are, you know, um, not very well known, I think, and um, it's a very special coastline, I think. Speaking of your surroundings, as a writer, how important are they to your inspiration? Um, gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I have a very, um, in terms of my literal surroundings, my sort of office is a spare bedroom and it's a single desk. And I think you, you know, you, that you just, you're, you're, you focus on the work in hand, but certainly, yes, I, I think a sense of place is, is very inspirational to me. And I think that actually does motivate me quite a lot. And certainly having spent the past year completely sort of, um, submerged in Somerset and its gardens, um, that has really fed into it. It fed into the book, I think. So yeah, I would I would put that quite high on the list of yeah of inspiration, definitely. And before your most recent book, you have a couple of gardening. Yes, uh, yeah. This is like so my third gardening book now, which yeah. is making me feel very venerable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one was a, a sort of fortunate combination of again London yep. uh, and gardens. So that was, it was for the same publisher actually who did the, 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 the Museums and Galleries of London and I'd been, you know, living out of London, mad keen about gardening and thinking how can I, you know, be really nice to combine these two things and, you know, the most obvious thing, oh yes, a book about London gardens, so, um, and my publisher was really keen on the idea, so 
what was meant to take a year to research actually ended up taking three years. But um, I really wanted to, uh, yeah, really show the exciting things that were happening in urban horticulture in London. So lots of community gardens, but also lots of very revered spaces like Kew and the Chelsea Physic Garden and um, the Temple Gardens. And I met some incredible gardeners along the way. So again, it was all about those sort of stories. And, um, you know, I started off with maybe about seven gardens that I knew I was going to include, which is nothing for a book, you know, and it just it just sort of grew from there. And, you know, the more I discovered, the more I discovered, the more I discovered. And um, and it was great. It was felt a very sort of zeitgeisty um, thing to be writing about because there was this, I think, a real resurgence in reclaiming you know, abandoned spaces and greening them. And uh, so, yeah, I've, it, you know, I've written about sort of, I guess, a very urban f form of gardening before moving on to a very rural form of gardening, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other one you mentioned, there are sort of three. Yes, the, yeah. The gardening trilogy. Oh, and then, well, then having kind of, um, you know, really spent a lot of time looking at people's gardens, uh, these, uh, you know, gar London gardens, um, thinking about why, you know, why do our gardens look like they do? You know, why are they laid out the way they are? Why do they have the plants in them that they have? And, you know, why do we have lawns? Why are we slaves to the border? And so trying to just step back in time and see where that all kind of started. So I just wanted to explore that through these sort of 50 ideas and innovations. So from the invention of the, the lawnmower to, you know, organic gardening and no-dig gardening, um, yeah, that was that book. So it's the, that's the remarkable case of Dr. Ward, and that also is really embedded in 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 London because the Wardian case, which started or enabled plant collectors to bring back living specimens of plant, was um, sort of invented in London and trialled in London. So um, London again, that's part. Of, it's horticulture is part of that historical resonance. So it was great to talk about it. So your latest book, Secret Gardens of Somerset, how long has the idea for that been kind of bubbling around in your head? Mm, bubbling along for a bit, actually. Um, so getting to know Somerset as a county and actually for a while I was working as a gardener um, in, in the Quantocks, um, realising, yeah, this is a great county for gardens and there are some great gardens out there. How many people, you know, in the wider world know about them? Um, so I... Yeah, I was so mulling that over because I thought, yes, this is ridiculous. I'm writing about London gardens, but actually I'm living in a place with great gardens and it would be, I'd love to write about them. So um, I guess a couple of years or so, I can't remember the exact chronology, but I sort of, you know, approached, approached the publisher with the idea actually of a, not just 20 gardens, but, you know, every garden in Somerset, a massive directory. And um, luckily they sort of <laughs> whittled that down because that really would have been, you know, incredibly um, difficult to do. So they um, had this little series, Secret Gardens, so they'd already done Secret Gardens of the Cotswolds, um, Secret Gardens of East Anglia. And I felt that Somerset definitely, you know, its time had come. Uh, we've got all sorts of very exciting gardens, both historical gardens, but also newer gardens. And um, so, yeah, that, it, it sort of fitted nicely into that niche and I was really happy to run with that. And so just choosing 20 gardens to write about and really focus on. How did you pick that 20? How important was it to showcase the diversity, but also have some degree of connectedness? Yes, I mean, it's, I, I wanted to obviously include a, a sort of a good variety of different styles of garden. And 
also I felt it was quite important to try and showcase, I was talking about Somerset landscapes earlier, um, to try and sort of take the reader and if that reader then translated into a visitor, um, to take them around Somerset so they would experience the Mendips, the Quantocks, the Levels, um, the, the, the coast um, and yeah, all areas in between really. So um, I was sort of kind of sort of selecting from that point of view as well but they, they all are gardens that really speak to me and um, I wanted to yeah, share, the, share the stories of those gardens but also the people who either have created them, some are, some are quite new gardens, or people who are looking after historic gardens and keeping those, uh, you know, sort of taking them on to, you know, the next level or, um, or trying to maintain a continuity. There are different approaches to garden management yeah. in that respect. Yeah, as you mentioned, the book is as much about the people behind the garden as the garden themselves. Yeah. What observations did you make about the relationship between a garden and its owner or its custodian? Well, I think the thing that struck me most really is, is just that sort of, just the dedication to, ha you know, to maintaining and sort of running, for want of a better word, a, you know, a complicated garden over a year or many years. You know, it's, 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 it's hard graft and it's, it's, it's quite gruelling. So I think it, it takes that sort of dedication um, and a lot of skill as well. So I was very sort of humbled by the gardeners I met really. They had huge knowledge, but they were all very, you know, very modest about it. And you know, all gardeners always want to point out the kind of flaws in their sort of, in their garden. But um, yeah, they, they, um, they were very inspiring from, from, from that point of view. Um, and I think, you know, some people, some of the gardeners in the book are people who've, uh, you know, arrived fairly recently in, in Somerset and have just wanted to create a garden and then, you know, related it to, to their landscape. Others are people, yeah, who've sort of inherited gardens and sort of grown up with them and uh, they've always been in the background. So, yeah, there's, it's, it's a real mixture. In the book, you talk about the notion of Somerset um, and its gardens being a little bit maybe rough around the edges um, and maybe not so polished as somewhere like the Cotswolds. Do you think that's true? Well, I don't know whether I'd say rough around the edges or polished, but I think Somerset is quite an unpretentious county and it is, it's down to earth and um, I think you can't get sort of, you know, they're not sort of highfalutin gardens in a way. I think that's so many of the people I talked to when I sort of said, why do you like Somerset? They felt that it was, it had a sort of authenticity about it. Um, and it didn't have sort of airs about it. It wasn't grand, it wasn't smart. And I think um, that's certainly sort of what I respond to about Somerset as well. So um, it probably does reflect in the gardens. I think they're all quite accessible gardens in a, in a way. They're sort of easy to relate to, um, even if they might be, you know, much, much bigger than the normal garden. Um, there, is, there is something about it that is a sort of softness and, um, informality even within a formal garden there will be an informality mm. yeah even you know the the Udolf field at Hauser and Worth despite it being you know part of a, a much bigger gallery uh, there's it's accessible it's it's totally and I just love the way it's become part of such a part of Bruton and that people really you know get so much out of it mm. it's, it's a lovely place to visit not only experiencing the garden but also other people's experience of the garden as you're going around which is also something I get a lot out of going around art galleries and things that I think your fellow visitor gives you 
sometimes as much or sometimes even more you know some of these some of the wonderful conversations you can eavesdrop on in galleries uh, yeah it's it's a it's a it's a sort of social experience uh, when you're visiting a garden like that some are quite you know more solitary but um, Harrison Worth is really in a sort of an occasion garden in yeah. that respect it's lovely do you have any favorite memories or stories of the visits themselves I mean my memories are of that it was quite an intense period last summer doing the research because the book was commissioned sort of early in May, which is quite late in gardening terms. You know, a lot is already happening in the garden. So we really had to sort of, uh, Clive um, Borsnell, the photographer and I, had to really sort of hit the ground running. Um, so it was a lot of a lot of driving around Somerset and I really enjoyed sort of seeing the, um, well, enjoyed those landscapes, but also seeing the verge sides and that sense of expectation when you're coming to a garden you haven't visited before and you're you know winding through the lanes and suddenly you're there so i think it's that sense of arrival and excitement um, that I, I i remember most i think how significant do you think a book like this is after we've had a year of not always being able to visit yeah, gardens it's, like this. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I had, to, you know, thank goodness I was, you know, able to do the research last year when we could, you know, so freely travel around and visit gardens. I think, yeah, it's a gardens have got this extra resonance for people and importance. I think, you know, for those of us who were lucky enough to have a little garden space during lockdown, they were complete lifesavers, really, sort of. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, I spent a lot of time in the garden. I sort of got completely, you know, all dig for victory and half the garden is now sort of a, a vegetable garden. Um, so I think with, well, obviously now we've got a few more restrictions currently, but, you know, when restrictions were first lifted and people could go and visit gardens, I think people really flocked to gardens with a sense of relief and, um, you know, renewed enjoyment of them. So I think, yeah, they, I think it's, it's very much highlighted the importance of gardens, um, you know, yeah, to, to, to a, lot, a lot of people. So what's next on the agenda? Is there a, is there a second volume? More secret gardens? Ooh, um, well, obviously there are secret gardens that I couldn't include, so maybe I'll, I'll try and do some sort of, um, some pieces of the gardens that, you know, on, on the gardens that I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't squeeze into the book. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm just, you know, at the moment uh, enjoying the book finally being out, and I'm going to be doing uh, so a book signing, and it's difficult in, the, in these, these restricted times, but um, on the 25th of September, I'll be signing uh, and talking about the book at Yo Valley Organic Garden, which is one of the, the gardens featured. And I, I believe they have a teepee that I'm going to be in, and um, I think Clive, the photographer, is also going to be there. So we'll be talking about the book, um, if anyone's interested in hearing, um, but the gardens there are fantastic. But you do have to book a time slot, so it's, it's all, it's very socially distanced and safe and obviously in wonderful fresh air. Um, so that's sort of on the immediate horizon. And I think I will also probably um, do, you know, do some, some, maybe some talks about the garden. So Secret Gardens of Sunset. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. So I will be translating the book into a sort of illustrated talk for gardening clubs. So if anyone, you know, would like to book me, <laughs> they can find me on my website. Um, but uh, in the meantime, yeah, just, um, yeah, just enjoying the fact that the book is out, I think. Abigail, we're now going to play Somerset Levels, which is the game where you have to guess whether locations in Somerset are going to be higher or lower than the previous one. Okay. Should we give it a bash? We'll give it a bash. I'll see whether all my driving around Somerset has paid off. Okay. All right. The, the first location is obviously 
that's a freebie. You don't have to guess because that sets the benchmark of, okay. of higher or lower. And the first location is Western Supermare Parade, which is 30 feet above sea level. So, mm. That's interesting. You could, I could, uh, the instinct is to say the next one is going to be higher, but maybe you're playing some cunning game. And it's, and all, it goes, ra it's all random. It's, all, it's random. Okay, well, I will, I, if it is random, I'm going to say higher. It is higher. Ooh. It is Ashton Windmill which is 142 feet oh, above Oh, not that much higher, but yeah. Have you been? Uh, no, I haven't, no. Should I go? Probably um, should. I mean, it is a windmill, that's all. Is it's it a working pretty, windmill? Is um, it? I don't know if it works. It's still got the blades and everything. Oh, okay, all right. Nice. Oh, well, I'll go and, I'll go and see that. It's good from a photography perspective. Okay, good, yeah, good for my Instagram feed. Yeah, very, very good for your Instagram <laughs> okay. feed. All right, 142 feet, higher or lower? I'm going to say lower. It is lower. Uh, it is Shapwick Heath, Ooh. which is on the levels. Uh, it's wonderful. In a few months' time, Starling we'll be Central. Going there and seeing yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we're at twenty-one feet. Okay. Higher or lower? Um, as they are random, I'm still. Go I'm going to go higher. It is higher. Ooh. It's the Royal Crescent in Bath. Ooh. Which is only one hundred and eighty-five feet. Gosh, in the city of hills, it's not mm. that high, is it? Yeah, not, interesting. Not so, this is very educational, this game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you say so. Yeah, yeah. I am saying okay. so. Yeah. Okay. Higher or lower than Royal Crescent? Mm. I'm feeling the tension rising. I'm going to say higher. It's lower, unfortunately. Oh. Sorry. No. It's Blagdon Lake, which is only 142 feet. Right, so there's a lot of low-lying, low-lying places. Yeah. yeah, we didn't really reach we didn't, much We didn't reach the heights. heights, no. No. Oh, I, just, I, hope not that's not a I hope that's not a metaphor for this, this whole time. podcast, no. <laughs> this episode. <laughs> well, you're just going to have to write another book so I can come and I will have to do that. talk to you again. I will do. I, I, I think uh, the whole process is, it, it, it is quite, quite, uh, quite... A, a, demanding one on lots of levels and when you're sort of doing it you think oh god why am i doing this i'm never going to do another one and then it's out and hopefully you get some nice you know some some nice feedback you think oh actually maybe it wasn't so bad i'll do another one <laughs> so watch this space before we go where can people find out more about you about the the book um, about everything else that you're up to at the moment well i've got a website which is www.abigailwillis.co.uk um, the books are, I'm sure that uh, hopefully they'll be very widely available, but we are, uh, they are available in Bailey Hill Bookshop in Castle Kerry, which is my local independent bookshop. So we're always keen to support independent bookshop, uh, not least because my husband's the manager there. Uh, but uh, so you can get it there. And if you want to sign copy, um, you know, just get in touch and get in touch with the bookshop and that can be easily arranged. So, um, yeah, do pop in. We just, uh, I think they're just about to do a big window display, so you won't be able to move for, for books about secret, uh, <laughs> secret gardens of Somerset. Abigail, thank you so much for your time. You've been a fantastic guest. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Somerset Stories, or email us, hello at somersetstories.com. See you next time.